Hope you're doing well today. I'm going to put this down for now in honor of our dear friends. Well, my name is Adrian. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Great to be with you today. I want to follow up on one announcement, though, that was given there, the Ministry Expo that will be happening next week. Part of what we're trying to do, really the essence of what we're trying to do here, our mission is to build a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people. And we believe that part of the way we become a transformational community is that everyone in here would be a part of three different environments, and the result would be as we're a part of three different environments, we will grow consistently over the course of the years to come toward the likeness of Christ. We'll grow in transformation. We'll grow in discipleship. And I just want to kind of remind our church, particularly as we ramp up for the fall with the Ministry Expo, that this is a great time to kind of just do a little check on your soul and say, uh, how am I doing in the worship environment? Am I engaging with the gospel, engaging well with the truth? Do I come into church on Sunday morning ready to go, ready that perhaps God might do something big even in me? And there's a a gospel and a truth environment. That's our main worship service. And we have another environment that's called uh, life groups and community. And we just really believe in the, the importance and the power of being in community here. And if you don't yet have a life group ministry, you don't yet have a care ministry of some kind, just ignore him for a moment. Focus right here. <laughs> if you don't have a, uh, some kind of small group community or a Sunday school or you're part of one of the care ministries on Monday evenings, encourage you to come next week to the Ministry Expo and you'll learn more about those. Or contact uh, John Watson and learn more about our life group ministry. And then finally, we believe that people will grow more in Christ as we are on mission for what Christ wants done in the world. And so I would strongly encourage everyone to uh, go to that Ministry Expo next Sunday after both services you choose one that you go to, and if you don't yet have an area of mission in the church or out to the community, I'd encourage you to pray about how I could personally find some area of mission to serve the church or the community one to two hours a week. That's about it. One to two hours per week or even one to two hours every couple weeks. And we really believe that as we do that, we will grow in our service muscle, so to speak. And as we grow in our service muscle, for the cause of Christ, we grow in our discipleship. So it's really important, though, that we just note from time to time, we believe we need these three different environments, and collectively they become our discipleship model, the way that we believe over the coming year or years we will grow in the likeness of Christ. We will increasingly be transformed as we move all in that same direction. So this ministry expo isn't something just to help you stay busy. It's something that's intentionally given for the purpose of helping our church grow in discipleship as we serve and make a difference in other lives. Okay, enough said there on vision related to next week. Let's turn right now to Daniel chapter 9 and 10. We're actually going to start in Daniel 10 this morning. We're going to jump right into this message, jump right in in just a moment to, to the scriptures. We have limited time, so I, I want to get into it. There's a lot to cover in these two chapters. And what we're going to see in Daniel 9 and 10 is a man who has developed great authority, but he exercises his authority on his knees. We're going to see a man who has great intellect, but he trusts in an intellect that is far greater than his. We'll see a man of profound wisdom, but he trusts in one who is the only wise God. And the primary way that he grows his trust in God, we see it throughout 
the book of Daniel, but especially here in chapters 9 and 10, is prayer. And so we want to learn from Daniel, though, this morning, how we might also become people of greater authority as we trust in the one who alone has all authority. The context here is Daniel is leafing through, in chapters 9 and 10, he's leafing through the book of Jeremiah. And as he's leafing through the book of Jeremiah, you see that especially at the start of chapter 10, uh, he recognizes in these scrolls that God has ordained punishment for the people of Israel in response to their two great sins, which were idolatry and injustice. And that punishment equaled 70 years in exile. And so as Daniel's doing the mathematical equations, I imagine, this moment, leafing through the scroll, unrolling the scroll of Jeremiah, he recognizes those 70 years are close to being up. It happened in 586 B.C., and maybe now it's about 650 B.C. Excuse me, yeah, 650, I'm missing my math here. About uh, 530 B.C., moving forward there, and uh, the, the, the scroll of, of, of Jeremiah is opened up, and he's saying to himself, oh, this is about to come to an end. And uh, Daniel's very old now. He's been in exile 60 years himself, but he recognizes once again as he reads the book of Jeremiah the reason for their 70-year captivity. And it leads him to his knees. It makes him fall upon his knees in prayer, in mourning, and in fasting. And that's really what he's doing in chapters 9 and 10. We'll take a look here starting in chapter 10. We'll just read verses 1 through 9 to begin. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, third king that Daniel is living under, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. And for three weeks, I ate no delicacies, no meat, no wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, he sees a vision that looks remarkably close to the, to the vision that we see of Jesus in the book of Revelation chapter 1. Jesus appears to John there, and that vision that John gets is remarkably close to this vision that Daniel gets here. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were there with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. And I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face upon the ground. 
Now, there's so much that could be said about this vision itself, but I think for our purposes this morning, where we would like to emphasize, where we'd like to focus our time is on the intensely practical reality of what Daniel is doing in this moment. Again, as he experiences the pre-incarnate Christ, he is fasting, and he is mourning, and he is praying. And he realizes in this moment that God is personally coming to minister to him, but this is his posture toward God. He sees the one named Jesus, who was and is and always will be, and what does he do? He falls to his face. He can't stand in the presence of the greatness of God. And as far as the specifics, that might change from person to person, but we see out of this portrait is something that's very consistent across the centuries and across many, many people here in this room, and it's this very important principle that those who seek God more shall experience God more. Do you believe that? This is a truth. That no, matter, no matter who you are, no matter the century, man or woman, young or old, those who seek God more will in fact experience God more. He's always and everywhere present, but he avails himself increasingly to those who seek him as the very first thing in their lives. Now, we may or may not get a vision of God like Daniel did. I think probably we won't. In fact, I think these would be extraordinarily rare. These special visions were given to Daniel, a prophet for foretelling the future of Israel and the church, and we probably shouldn't expect the same. We might get a special dream or a vision, but we don't live for those. We don't seek those. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say we don't seek the experience of God. What you want to be sure that you are seeking is God himself. And then the experience of God will come thereafter. You seek God and the experience of him comes thereafter. It comes to those who earnestly seek him. It is not coincidental at all that God chose a man who lived on his knees. Because God always chooses women and men who live on their knees. Consistently across the centuries, God chooses to do great things through men and women who are submitted to him, either literally have the posture of being on their knees or metaphorically have the posture of being on their knees before a God who is far greater than they are. I think of John Wesley, for example, who remarked that God does nothing but in answer to prayer. And then he backed it up by praying for over two hours per day. Well, he must not have been very busy. Oh, if you know John Wesley, you know he was exceedingly busy. He was so busy he couldn't afford not to pray. And he lit up the first great reformation, the first great spiritual awakening, awakening in two different continents, in England and in the United States. Or I think of Martin Luther who translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew to his native German, and he led the Protestant Reformation lit that up and was the main organizer for it at the very beginning. And he said, I am so busy, I cannot afford to spend less than three hours per day in prayer. I'm so busy, I can't afford not to pray. It's such a great reminder for me as I think sometimes, oh, I don't have enough time. No, that's false. That's relying on self as opposed to relying on God. Or I think of um, Jesus 
and his half-brother James. His half-brother James was a critic of Jesus, but then he encountered the resurrected Christ, and he became a believer himself, and then he started the church in Jerusalem, and uh, he was a church planner, and he was a great early church leader, and James had a nickname, and it was this, Camel Knees. He was nicknamed Camel Knees because, as we're so fortunate to have many mechanics who get calluses on their hands here in our church, or many construction workers who get calluses from all those hammers and those wrenches, and, and, and we thank God for those gifts that, that God has given. God apparently gave this wonderful gift to James that he would give to us as well, which is exercising authority on our knees. And so he got this nickname, Callous Knees, Camel Knees, because his knees got so calloused as he bowed before God in prayer. Here's one of the things that James tells us about prayer. James 4, verses 7 and 8 says simply, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Instead, draw near to God as the very first thing in your life. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You seek him first and you will experience more and more of him. What a great guarantee this is that we actively resist Satan and then he cannot stand. Stronger is the one who lives in us than the one who lives in the world. We draw near to God and he gives us help. We seek him first. Now, this wonderful vision goes on. Again, his face is on the ground. His nose is at Jesus' feet here. He gets this experience of the pre-incarnate Christ. And then it goes on, verse 10, to say this. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. You imagine the right hand of Jesus Christ touching Daniel at this moment as he's on his hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. And three different times in this passage, Jesus says to Daniel, O man greatly loved, as he's on his knees, he lifts him up. You are greatly loved. It goes on, stand upright, and when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the very first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is happening to your people in the latter days. For the vision is four days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground, and I was mute." Once again, the posture before Jesus. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips now. Then I opened my mouth and I spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. It goes on to say, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Isn't that a beautiful passage? And this portrait of him being on his knees and he has no strength left in him after this vision 
And he probably has no strength left in him because he's been in Babylon for 60 years. And Jesus comes to him and touches him and strengthens him again and again and again. He's seeking God, and God gives him an experience that is profound to him and strengthens him. You do not want to miss this. The heart of Jesus that comes to us while we are on our knees. It's really interesting to see that for Daniel, prayer did not change his circumstances, did it? He stayed in Babylon for another probably five or six years, and then he died. And then two or three years after that, Israel was released from captivity, and they went back home. But prayer did not change Daniel's circumstance. What prayer did do and what it will do is change you. Prayer will not always change our circumstances, but I promise the committed discipline of prayer will change you and me. I promise that. It may not change out there, but it will always change in here. And there's a great pain because of the mystery of prayer that many of us feel that we've had prayers that we begged for a long, long time, and we didn't get the answer that we longed for. And we have to trust in those moments that God and his Timeless sovereignty will ultimately do right, but we also know that through this gift, God will, in fact, change us. He changes us through the disciplined life of prayer. And you ask the question, how? How do we grow in prayer? And I'd like to just suggest for for the remainder of our time here this morning that it's much like any skill that you want to grow in. It requires a method, and then it requires practice. Any skill that you want to grow in, you have to have some kind of methodology for how you're going to get there, and then you need to practice it over and over and over again. I'm looking at a number of coaches in the audience. They know this. You teach a skill. You give a methodology, and then you have to practice it over and over again to get there. So I'd like to suggest a little acronym that might help us grow in this skill. Think of prayer that way. Remove some of the mystery. Grow in this skill of prayer. And really help us to, uh, to grow in Christ as a result, that he might change us as we draw near to him. It's a little acronym that helps us with our prayer lives. F-A-C-T-S. You see it on your outline. You can follow me as we go through it. And the very first thing that we see from Daniel, which is probably a little bit of a change from how you've typically seen this acronym, if you've seen the acronym ACTS, is this word FIGHT. We go, we grow in prayer as we realize that part of prayer is this commitment to fight against evil. God's given us some say-so in the world, and we get to fight against evil through the instrument of prayer. In fact, the Lord's Prayer itself even invites us to fight in prayer. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, in the original Greek, it's deliver us from the evil. What would the evil be? It would be the evil one. It's implied. Deliver us far from the evil one. And so when we go to our knees in prayer, we say, Lord Jesus, would you please help me? Would you please protect my family against the enemy? Would you please protect my soul from condemnation and accusation? And I come to you right now asking for your help, Lord Jesus, in the fight that I am in because the enemy is real. Resist the devil and draw near to God. Now this chapter that we just read presents a very different portrait of angels than most of us have in our minds. I don't know if you noticed that. Our portrait of angels comes from Hallmark cards. Chubby babies with some wings, very pale, 
on clouds playing harps. The portrait that we have of angels in this chapter is very different. Look at verse 20 and 21. The final words to Daniel are these. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, presumably to fight as well. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except against these, except Michael, your prince. So what is going on here? Apparently, Daniel's been praying for 21 days. And there's been a prince over Persia who is this fallen angel who exerts some authority, some control over Persia. And the prince of Persia has somehow, it looks like, committed past interference on the prayers getting back to Daniel. Okay, this is merely an analogy to help, but maybe it'll help explain the authority that God has given to angels and what happens when angels like Lucifer rebel and fall. So I wonder if I can get Dan up here as my little partner, little volunteer that he didn't know he'd be volunteering today. Let, let, let's just pretend, just pretend with me that uh, you got this, uh, this prayer request though, that's been received by God. Okay, just pretend. Obviously we know. Received by God. And uh, he's attempting to send this prayer request back to, we'll, we'll pretend he's Tommy Armstrong and I'm Jordan Westerkamp, okay? He's sending it back to Jordan Westerkamp. Go ahead and send it over here. But it keeps getting knocked down by this demon angel from the University of Iowa. <laughs> right, right? For 21 consecutive passes, it just keeps getting knocked down. And Westerkamp can't catch it. And then finally, Westerkamp, I mean Daniel, catches this answered prayer. Thank you, brother. Catches this answered prayer that had been coming from 21 days before. Can you believe that? That's what it says. You, you read this chapter carefully, that's what it says. It says, from the very first day that your prayer rose up to God, your words were heard. But the prince of Persia interfered. The prince of Greece, and I'm going there now, to fight against them. Again, a very different image than chubby babies on clouds. It sounds crazy, I know. In our modern world, it sounds very, very bizarre. But the Bible tells us that there are angels who also have free will, and some of them have rebelled. And those who have rebelled have some authority, and they interfere with our prayer. And so we have to fight against the spiritual forces of darkness that would wage war against our soul. This is part of what we must do. Again, I know it sounds crazy. I remember years ago, I was discipling a man who was coming out of homelessness and out of alcoholism, and he made a commitment to Christ, and I remember telling him one day, brother, you, you need to understand that we're in a spiritual war, and you need to learn to, how to take up the weapons for battle. And he said, spiritual war? You want me to believe that, Adrian? Do you know how hard it is for me to believe even that God rose Jesus from the dead? And you want me to believe that too? Yeah, I understand. That's hard to believe, especially for modern folks like us who have been trained in a naturalistic worldview. I am one of the most over-educated, under-intelligent people that you'd meet. And all of my training, with the exception of my seminary, came in a naturalistic worldview. One undergrad, 
one graduate degree, and then finally seminary later on, but those first two degrees were all in a naturalistic worldview. And in that, it is difficult to believe that there would be war in the heavens. There would be some kind of spiritual warfare that we actually have to fight. It's really interesting, though, that, that some of the greatest minds in all of history have been persuaded that this is true. I think of uh, World War II when a group of philosophers and theologians and great psychologists got together in the, one of the most secular countries, also one of the most educated countries, Germany. And they were dialoguing about what was going on in Germany at the time of World War II and with the Holocaust. And all these great thinkers, some Christian and some not, agreed that the nation was under demonic possession. And I'd have to say that I agree as you look back at history and what happened in Germany in those years. And that seems to be, again, a bit of what Daniel is talking about here. There's this prince that has some authority over Persia. It all sounds very odd to our modern minds, but I am reminded of the beautiful passage from Ephesians 6 that speaks about the full armor of God. And in it, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Put it on every day. That you may be able to take your stand against the schemes of the devil, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. He talks about prayer throughout that passage in the context of a bit of spiritual warfare. And I just got to tell you, it's very easy to disbelieve what I'm saying here. But I've, talking, I've talked to no less than three families over the past three months who have a history in their family, including themselves, of dabbling in this stuff before they became Christians. Dabbling in Ouija boards and dabbling in tarot cards and on and on. And it's had disastrous consequences for their families. And these are sober-minded, thinking people. There's nothing wrong with these people emotionally. They have no psychological disorder. They're sober-minded people. And they've had disastrous consequences for their kids and for visions that they've seen in their homes. And again, none of this can be understood by a naturalistic worldview, but it can be understood from a spiritual worldview in which Paul says the battle is real. And Daniel says the battle is real. And Jesus says the battle is real. And so regardless of what anyone says, regardless of my natural inclination, I am going to fight in my prayer life. And we understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against any person. It's against these spiritual forces. And so as we bow our knees in prayer, we say, I, I come over my family asking you, God, to protect my family. I come over my soul asking God that I, you would help me by the power of the Holy Spirit not to take in any condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I come over my wife that she would not feel accused or condemned falsely that her, her joy would not be taken. Come over our church that we would not get into legalistic religion, but life-giving relationship with Christ. I pray against all of that by the power of the Holy Spirit. I commit to fight. And if we don't commit to fight, you will be a casualty. If you don't commit to fight, you will be a casualty of those wicked schemes of the father of lies who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. That's number one. Number two, as we go on in chapter nine, if you look back in chapter nine, is this word adoration. We adore God in our prayer language, and we'll move more quickly here. 
as we look at just a number of highlights from Daniel's model prayer in chapter 9. You look at chapter 9, verse 4. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Well, what's Daniel doing there? He's worshiping God for who he is. He's adoring God because of his steadfast love and his great power. He's adoring God because of his uh, commitment to his commandments and his covenant of peace with his people. And this is what we do in adoration. We simply worship God for who he is. i got to tell you, there's so much power to begin your day with adoration of God. Not so much for what he can do for you, but for who he is. We adore God simply for who he is. We acknowledge his character at the beginning of the day. And we can do that, of course, throughout the day in our prayers or when we're listening to Christian music, whatever it might be. But especially at the beginning of the day to set aside 10 or 15 minutes for prayer and just say, Lord, I adore you for who you are. To you belongs all glory. To you belongs all praise. May you increase today. May I become less. That's what we're doing when we adore God. We love him for who he is. Second, or third, actually, is this word confession. And that's what we just did in that beautiful prayer that our worship team led us in. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. We confess to you, God, that we have failed what we have done wrong. And so does Daniel here in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong, and we have acted wickedly and rebelled. Turn aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to you. I haven't listened to you, God. Then he goes on in verse 7 to say, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Oof, I don't want to say that about myself. Open shame? But he says that three times. To us belongs open shame. And once again, Daniel's that kind of leader who is repenting on behalf of his people. He's reflecting on what happened in Israel all those years ago when he was just a teenager. And he says, to us, not to them, but to me, to us, to my family belongs open shame. I agree with you. I say the same things that you say about me, God. When we hear someone say that they don't need to ask for forgiveness, I promise you that is a person who is not in touch with their own soul, who is not in touch with God, and definitely not in touch with what the Bible says about us. We regularly should be in the habit of confessing how we've missed the mark. And then as we confess, perhaps in our small groups and certainly one-on-one to God, we also just develop this community that says, it's okay to confess. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay not to have all your stuff together. I need to be in such a community because I got lots of warts and foibles just like you. So we just admit that. Unhealth comes when we refuse to admit the same thing that God already says about us. As we do this, God draws us near to to him. He gets us back on track, back on our targets, and he changes us in the process of confession. Once again, it may not change our circumstances. It will change us. Fourth here, we see thanksgiving. And I don't know why Daniel did not include this in his prayer. He must have not been thinking about the acronym that I wanted to teach to you this morning. It's not here in Daniel chapter 9, but it is so many other places in the Bible, okay? And this simple acronym, again, is helping us with this practice, this methodology. And you want to let all of your thanks be thanks. We want to grow in thanksgiving. 
We want to find ways to give thanks each and every day for so many different things though, that God has given to us. We, we want to uh, develop this attitude of gratitude. I love the way 1 Thessalonians 5.18 puts it. It says, in all your circumstances, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He's not saying give thanks for all those circumstances. He's saying there is something in every situation that you are in today that you can give thanks for. There's something there you can give thanks for. You can even give thanks for what God might do through that given situation. And once again, as we develop this, it changes us in the right direction. The final word is supplication. And supplication is just a fancy word for prayers, for asking, for petitions. And God likes to be asked. He's like a good friend who likes to be asked. I don't know about you, I love it when a good friend who knows and trusts me asks for my help. I, I want to give that. There's a joy in that. And God is this way too. He loves when we ask for his help. He loves when we come to him and say honestly, this is what I'm stewing right now, God. Would you give me today my daily bread? Verses 18 and 19 put it beautifully. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, would you pay attention and would you act? Do you know you can talk to God like that? God, pay attention, please. God, I'm begging you. God, I've been begging you for 21 days. Would you please pay attention? You can talk to your God that way. What God invites is a very real person before a very real God with very real needs. He invites us not to pray in flowery language, but to ask with a true contrite heart that needs his intervention, that trusts in his authority. And when you are bathing a prayer day after day, like Daniel is, for 21 days, one of the things that you want to be sure to do is write that prayer down. And Daniel does that here as well because we want to see when God answers it. We're bathing it in a crock pot over and over again for weeks and even months at times because when you get specifically uh, a specific answered prayer from God, when God gives you some kind of prayer answer that is so powerful, that is uh, very detailed and specific, that, that can be so powerful for building your faith. In fact, I would go so far as to say that few things are as powerful for building my faith than a specific answered prayer. Because it says to me, God is willing to come to me individually. He cares about seven billion, but he cares about one. He cares about all of us. And so we come to him with our very specific prayers and we wait on him to answer. So let me close this message out with a simple challenge. What if we all engaged in this very simple methodology for prayer, we practice it together for 21 days, like Daniel did? Maybe you have a different methodology for prayer, and by all means do that. But starting on something like this for 10 or 15 minutes each day to engage our relationship with God, I promise you, in 21 days, that commitment will change you. It may or it may not change your circumstances, but I promise that as we go before our God and say, Lord, I'm committed to fight against evil today, and so I come to you in prayer. I adore you for who you are, 
for your steadfast love and your great faithfulness. I adore you. Father, I, I confess that I failed in these ways. Would you forgive me? Father, I thank you for the way you blessed my family. I thank you for this beautiful day and this beautiful church. Thank you for these people that I get to worship with today. Thank you for the job you've given me. I thank you. And, and, and Father, I ask you, would you please help in these two or three ways? As you do that, I trust that God will answer some of your prayers. I trust that God will be magnified. And I know that God will change us. Would you engage with me in that for 21 days? F-A-C-T-S, anyone? If so, pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of prayer. Thank you that it is our very first spiritual weapon. And it grants us courage to take our stand against the enemy and his schemes. And so, Father, I pray for our church, though, that you grant us a newfound practice, a newfound strength, a newfound perseverance to grow in this wonderful discipline, that you would change us, that you would make us a more dependent people who trust in the one who alone is God to do things in us that we could never, not, that we could never do, who would change us in a way that we could never change ourselves. To you be honor and glory. We'll all say together, amen.